Today's episode is brought to you by Sacrate. Are you looking to add quality concrete, mortar, and stucco mixes, as well as repair and specialty items to your product lineup? Sacrate provides the tools you need to run a better business, whether that's through exceptional customer support, sales and marketing tools, varied product assortments, or just finding reliable products. Sacrete offers knowledgeable retail experts that understand the needs of your store. To learn more, visit www.sacrete.com slash hardware retailing. Welcome to another episode of Hardware Retailing's podcast, Tell Me More, hosted by myself, Renee Shagnon. Today, we're at the Hancock Lumber Home Office in Casco, Maine, talking with Kevin Hancock, chairman, president, and CEO of his family's seventh-generation business, Hancock Lumber. Kevin, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit of the backstory of the family business? Sure. I'm uh, happy happy to be with you. So our company began doing business in uh, 1848 prior to the first cannonball being fired in the Civil War and I'm part of the sixth generation of my family to work here and we're a integrated company uh, here in Maine so we grow trees and then we manufacture manufacture lumber that we ship all over the world and then here in Maine and New Hampshire we operate um, 10 lumber yards contractor lumber yards all with hardware store components that uh, supply a full line of building materials to homeowners and contractors and we have uh, 550 people who are part of our team wow that's a that's a big team right there. Yeah, it, it's a big team, but we're spread out across fifteen different locations. So, yeah. uh, it's it's fifteen smaller regional teams working together as one company. Do you ever? Oh, I'm going to turn off the sound on my phone so that doesn't happen again. So if you picked up the little ding ding at the end, sorry about that. Um, so, are all of those employees ever together at the same time? I feel like, like, do you ever no, have like a like don't. a Hancock day no, and everyone just comes difficult. together? No, the, <laughs> we we uh, we. But that's a good question. We really uh, believe in uh, operating locally, so each site does a lot of activities together as a team. But we don't. It would be really difficult to get the whole company together. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so I, it's a family operation and you've been in it, I'm sure even since you were a kid. So tell us a little bit about what it was like, I guess, growing up and seeing, were you around like your grandfather and dad in it or how was it kind of growing up? Yeah, I remember, well, when I was a kid, I can remember when the entire company was one site here in Casco and I would... Uh, go down to the office store and go in and see my grandmother and my grandfather and my dad and I just um, 
you know, the business and the family were very closely intertwined. So I just I just grew up um, around the business and in the business and have really felt like uh, it's part of who we are. Yeah. Well, and from some of the things I've researched about, about the company, um, it sounds like it's not just you know, family and then the other employees. It sounds like the whole company is, you know, a family in and of itself in many ways. Yeah, for sure. We put a really uh, big emphasis on people, which doesn't sound like that novel an idea, but but it's really uh, important. You know, when I travel around the company, I don't really pay a lot of attention to our machinery or trucks or buildings. What I'm really interested in are the people who work there because really the only thing that any company has in our industry that's different from other companies are the people that work there. Everyone's got hardware, everyone's got stores, everyone's got advertising, everyone has a marquee. (laughs) The only thing that makes any company different is the specific people that work for that company. Exactly. Um, So, so what would you say, I've I've also seen that um, the business has been recognized as like top place to work in Maine and you've had different kind of accolades over the years. Um, and culture seems like it's a big part of, of your business as well. Um, this is, I think a little later down in, in the questions I had, but, um, how would you say that that kind of plays into the success of the operation is, is the, I don't know if that question makes sense. Maybe. Well, I feel like I know where you're going with yeah, that. Yeah, it yeah. makes sense to me. Um, well, we're, uh, I would say it this way, we're, we're a very employee-centric company. So um, while I like to tell this story, I once stood up in front of a, a couple of years ago, a group of our biggest customers, and said, you know, that old iconic business saying, the customer comes first. I don't actually believe that's true. Mm-hmm. I think that the people who are going to take care of the customer, the employees who work at the company, that they come first. Mm-hmm. And if the company creates a, a great experience for the employees, then the employees will create a best-in-class experience for the customer. It's like that Simon Sinek quote that um, customers will never love a company unless the employees do. So what I like to say now, we use a piece of Maine slang. I like to say that the customer comes a wicked close second 
<laughs> so it wicked and main means actually good. Yeah. You use that word interchangeably with good. So our customers are super important to us. Yeah. We're very into them and we want them to have an amazing experience. But from corporate perspective, they don't actually come first the people who work here come yeah. first and yeah. if we do right by them they'll do right by the customer that's how we think about it so yeah. if you if you picture a like a flywheel of business success where you've got employees customers and the company yeah and for success to be sustained all three pieces of that triangle need to be cared for. Yeah. So it's really then just about where would you start trying to set that flywheel in motion. Yeah. We focus on setting that flywheel in motion at the point of the employee experience. Yeah. I would say uh, a lot of what you're saying reminds me of kind of what I explained. So in my role as the retail outreach coordinator at NRHA, um, I do kind of a a jack-of-all-trades type. I do a lot of different things. But one of the things that I do do is um, I am in charge of helping get retailers set up with our online training resources. And uh, we have, you know, nine courses, over 250 modules. And I always stress to retailers, whether they're an operation of 10 or an operation of 500, you know, if you're going, if you're going to invest in your employees, they'll do more for you in the long run. They'll see that you care about their success and want to see them grow. And so, you know, whether it's online training or making sure there's a program set in place so when you hire someone new, they're not just walking around, you know, what do I do now? You know, they're given that knowledge to really step into their role confidently. And I, I think people sometimes set that to the side, but it's it's a key element in, in helping build those, that employee morale, really. I, I like that a lot. One uh, question I'm fond of raising and, and asking people to think about uh, is what's the purpose of work in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. So we all work, but rarely I think do people stop and think about why. And I'm talking about like beyond the financial purpose. Everybody yeah. gets that. We need a paycheck and we need benefits. So there are financial reasons mm-hmm. to work. But uh, work should be bigger than than that. It yeah. should should add value uh, in more than economic ways yeah. to the people who who do it. And that, to me, really uh, is the purpose of work. It ought to add value to the lives of the people who uh, do it because people who work spend a big part of their life mm-hmm. working the average work week in america is like 48 hours mm-hmm. and people work for decades mm-hmm. and imagine having that be just a financial exercise yeah. that's a big so, uh it's not okay you know in the 21st century it may maybe in the 
uh, before the Industrial Revolution. That's, that's how, how it went. But today, that's not okay. So I think the real focus is to try to make work exciting and valuable and rewarding and fun and challenging uh, for the people who do it. Not, not just so that the company can't make more money, mm -hmm. but just for its own purpose, that work should be valuable to the people who do it. And if you can make the work experience valuable to the people who do it, then I think it's almost automatic that yeah. the company will have a successful outcome because you're going to have a highly engaged and caring and committed group of people doing the work. Definitely. Um, so 2008 time period is when a lot of people think of, you know, the recession and all the things that impacted the home improvement industry. And um, you guys were at, weren't you at a point in, in the business where things were kind of on an uptick at that point and then you know, dealing with that, what was that experience like kind of going through the, the recession and, and building stronger out of it? What do you think helped you guys to do that? Yeah, I started working for the company in 1991. I think I was maybe 25 years old from 91 until about 2007. Every year, the company got bigger, yeah. sales grew. And I laugh about that today, but I think when I was younger, to some degree, like I probably thought that was me or that was us or that we yeah. were particularly good at this. And we got a really uh, powerful awakening, like most companies in our industry, around 2008 when the housing and mortgage markets collapsed. In Maine, the um, size of the market for construction, if you measure building permits, fell by 66% in 36 months. Wow. And our sales, without losing a customer, essentially, fell by 50% in mm -hmm. 36 months. So that wow. was just an economic storm that um, couldn't be outrun no matter how early you got up and came to work and how late you stayed. You could not outrun uh, what was happening. And it was just, uh, I think, for the, anyone in our industry that lived through it, mm -hmm. it forever changed the way you think about um running a company yeah yeah um and during that time was it 2010 you learned you had um oh, i think i had it written down do you want to share kind of what the the medical yeah um yeah yeah what happened you were you just felt like you had a sore throat and just felt kind of a little sick and then kind of learned in the midst of all this going on with the recession maybe share your story yeah in that wouldn't uh, have been able to do what we're doing right now. So in 2010, in the middle of the 
uh, collapse, economic collapse. I began to have trouble speaking. So when I would go to talk, like all the muscles in my throat would spasm and squeeze and contract, and my voice got very broken and weak and hard for people to even hear. People couldn't really hear me. For me, it felt like it took a major athletic feat to push out even a few short sentences. So I uh, went to a doctor and then another doctor and was finally diagnosed with uh, spasmodic dysphonia, which is a rare neurological uh, disorder that affects mm-hmm. only speech, doesn't affect whispering, singing, yelling, exercising, <laughs> laughing, only speech with uh, no known cause, the disorder, and no known uh, cure. And so as a CEO, if you think about what your tool is, it's really your voice. And I made a living using my voice, and suddenly I couldn't really uh, use it. And and that initially sent me into a a tailspin, and I laugh about this now, but I said to myself at the time, what possible good could a CEO be who can't talk all the time? (laughs) So I had to learn quickly how to lead uh, differently and when it's difficult to talk you come up with strategies to talk less simply put just to protect your voice and the strategy I ended up developing which was only a health strategy initially not a leadership strategy initially Uh, was to answer a question with a question. Mm. Someone would come to me at the company because I'm the quote-unquote boss and ask a question. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to give much of an answer. So I started saying simply, that's a great question. What do you think we should do about it? And kind of putting the power back in their hands to then take it and, wow. Correct. That's pretty powerful. And that uh, person would say what he or she thought we we should do about it. And if it was at all reasonable, which it was 99.9% of the time, I then said, okay, that sounds good. Let's go do that. (laughs) But off then that person would go with his or her solution Uh to the problem that he or she saw. And what I noticed uh, after a while of doing this uh, really interested me, which was simply this people actually already knew what to do yeah they didn't actually need very often a ceo centric uh direction or instruction or solution they already knew what to do but they needed the almost like the validation 
or the encouragement or, you know, make sure they're going in the right direction. And I think a lot of people are probably, I mean, I still do that. I second guess myself, even though I'd probably know, like I'll turn to my, I, I transitioned roles, you know, in the past year, I, I came into this role in January and so I went from being an editor and kind of, I had that down. I did that for four and a half years. So now I'm in a new role and it's easy to turn around to, you know, the person above me and say, how would you do this? Or what should I do with this? And, you know, exactly like you said, she'll say, well, what do you think you should do? And the more you sit back and think about it, you're like, well, I would actually do this and do it. You know, it's like giving that person the power right. to make those decisions. Right. So that, Actually, that's where I landed. Uh, you know, initially, I only saw my voice condition as a uh, hindrance or a limitation or a pain in the neck, literally. Yeah. But then, at some point, it hit me, you know, this is actually um, a bit of a gift and an opportunity and an invitation to do something very different in terms of leadership. And I started thinking about it this way. What if we could create a culture where everybody led? Mm -hmm. Where everybody led. Where leadership was dispersed, not collected. Yeah. Wouldn't an organization where everybody led outperform, first of all, a more traditional top-down power Mm -hmm. to the center bureaucratic approach? But then secondly, most importantly, wouldn't an organization where everybody led be more socially valuable? Yeah. Like, wouldn't every individual take more from their experience if they were viewed as, treated as a leader? So from there, uh, we really started focusing on strategies, operational management strategies designed to push power out. I love that. And to, the way I think about it, is to make the voice of the employees stronger. Yeah. And that my, what really gave me a sense of like purpose or satisfaction or comfort with what happened to my own voice because I was in a leadership position was this was a chance to give a bunch of other people a bigger voice. Yeah. And that's really the way I think about leadership today, that it's just all about creating a safe culture where everybody can actually say what they really think. Wow, that's powerful too, because I think a lot of places people will avoid saying what they actually think because they don't want to upset someone that's above them or, you know, oh, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, so I'll just keep doing my job even though I think there's a better way to do it. Correct. So what has to change to create that safe culture is uh, the leaders have to change. The official managers have to change. In terms of uh, the the one big thing, it's how we respond to what people say. 
Yeah. And the fundamental change, the air that I try to push is that listening mm-hmm. is only for understanding. It's not for correcting. Yes. <laughs> and that when someone says something, they're not, it's not about are they right or wrong, which is, this is actually a pretty big paradigm shift, although it's easy to, to make once you commit to it. It's not about is what someone said right or wrong. That's simply their current view yeah. from where they sit at this point, moment in their life. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be judged or refuted or corrected. And once people know that they're not going to be... Um, not just reprimanded, but like redirected when they'll say something, they'll start over time to say what they actually think. And all you really have to say in response is thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And it's not a truth. It's not a truth or an untruth. It's just a perspective. And the, the, um, the perspective of company really is the collective view of everybody that works there. And once you can get that out in the open, you really can um, do some pretty special things in terms of really understanding what the core issues are from the perspective of the people who work here. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that it's empowering to employees that maybe previously didn't feel like their voice mattered. So it gives them more of a, um, you know, when they come to work, they feel like their purpose goes beyond just making a paycheck. It's I'm doing this because it's something I believe in. I'm part of this team. And um, I would also say that it seems like, um, you know, you're able to maybe learn things that you wouldn't know because you're not out in the sawmill or you're not in one of the lumber yards right. like working with with customers. So they might see something that you wouldn't see or know. And then if they do have an idea, like how do you then take some of the suggestions or things that you guys hear from employees of different levels and then actually not necessarily take exactly what they say and do it, but kind of go from that point and put it out It like I, I – was reading about you had had a um was it around this time too that you guys had changed um the way that you did shipping or not shipping but like deliveries and it you increased your efficiency i I was listening to something you had spoken about on that and i I don't know if that's kind of a good example that ties into this yeah um well first of all to your point uh, you know every employee at this company knows more about his or her job than I do. Yeah. Because they, they do it every single day, and they know what creates a good experience in their job area, and they know what screws it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's yeah. really just about giving them the voice and the power to fix it. Uh, so this was the real challenge, though, um, how are we going to measure that? You know, if you want to 
to make the company priority be to make the voice of the employee strong and to know the company through their experience. How are you going to do that? So uh, we need some data. Yeah. We need some data is, is where we landed. So we ended up uh, starting around 2013 doing an annual third-party employee survey okay. designed to, in a safe way, give every employee in the company a um, voice. Yeah. And, and uh, those surveys would show the areas in which the employees were having a really good experience mm-hmm. and the areas in which they weren't having as great an experience. Yeah. And you simply take um, the things that are going well, share them and celebrate them, take the things that aren't going as well, and we then would go into... Uh, huddles, focus groups with smaller groups of employees, okay. show them the answer to a survey question that scored low, and say to the group, does it surprise you that that question scored low? And the room will be quiet for a minute, <laughs> and then one brave soul initially will break the ice and say, no, that doesn't surprise me. And all you then have to say is, well, thanks for sharing that. Can you tell me more about why it doesn't surprise you? And then another person will jump in, and soon everybody's nodding their head and talking about it. And then you simply say, after enough discussion has happened, well, can you think of anything that would make it better? Yeah. And they will come up with a great list of simple, usually inexpensive, things that would make it better and then we go do that wow so i call it the um i really call it the answers to the test (laughs) that in the right conditions the people who do the work will tell you exactly Mm -hmm. where the improvement opportunities lie and you just follow them um through that simple process but it takes really takes top leadership commitment to drive it so i had made the um decision that as a management team our employee engagement score through Mm -hmm. the survey was going to become our most important metric yeah so if you run a mill or a store for us you have responsibility for sales and profit and margin and inventory shrink and all of that. But your most important metric mm-hmm. is your team's survey score, mm. their view of their experience. Yeah. And through that process, we ended up, uh, that's how we ended up becoming a best place to work. We now take our surveys through the best places to work 
uh, organization, which is a national organization okay. that runs uh, this program, I think, in every state Oh, that might be America. nice for other retailers to know, too. Is It's super inexpensive. I think the survey costs a few thousand dollars. Yeah. You go online, there are 90 questions that are proven yeah. questions that get at an employee's experience. Uh, and you only become a best place to work if that score, well, our score last year was uh, 89% total score of the employees that work here mm-hmm. define themselves as being highly engaged in their company wow. and their work. The national average for that number, according to Gallup, is about 33%. Oh my gosh, how sad is that? And Correct. it makes you realize how many people are working and are not fulfilled or don't feel like they're, they are having their voice heard. And then they just show up and just do the work to get the paycheck. Exactly. And that's the real um, tragedy that's not okay. That that in the 21st century, um, living on the weekends or in vacations or on retirement and then sacrificing your work 80% life. 80% of your life. Yeah, that's not okay. Okay. No. And it's not necessary either. So that's the big reason for going after this. The outcome, I've started to really talk about um, profit, which obviously is super important to a company, but that profit is actually not the mission, it's the outcome. Okay. The mission is an exceptional employee experience, yeah. which creates an exceptional customer experience, which, which creates an exceptional yeah. corporate result. Yeah, but that's an outcome. Yeah, that's. And I think that's important to look at it that way too. Right, it's a subtle shift. It doesn't mean it's not important. It's very important because the company can't sustain itself without being profitable mm-hmm. but it's not that's like just not enough reason yeah to to work to have a company it's got to have a bigger social purpose yeah. than that because an, another thing I think about a, a lot now or have since my voice issue is um, you know where where in the world can adults, self-actualize is the phrase I like to use. Where can they come into their own voice, Yeah. find their own skills, learn, grow, test themselves, gain confidence? Where Where is that going to happen? Yeah. And work, Yeah. because so many people do it, is actually the, the, the best possible place for it to happen, yeah. but the leaders who run workplaces mm-hmm. have got to start thinking a bit differently about the purpose yeah. of having a company to begin with. Yeah, definitely. I agree 100% with what you're saying. Um, you know, one of the things I hear from retailers a lot is, 
it's really hard to find good employees these days. I can't find any good employees. What are, what do you say to that? Like, is there is there a certain way to find employees? I mean, you have over 550, and yes, it's across several different locations and, and types of things, but, I mean, would you agree with that statement, or what are your thoughts yeah, on it? Yeah, I don't agree with it. If you have a world-class culture for employees as defined by the people who work there you're not going to have trouble finding people to be a part of your company you know um, we one of the reports I get every week that I look at is a key indicator of how we're doing is how many openings we have mm-hmm. and with the 150 employees, even though unemployment is at like an all-time low here in Maine, we've never had gotten to 10 in terms of our openings. Wow. And people talk in Maine about the demographics in Maine are challenging because we have an aging population here in Maine and, and we're net losing population as a state, not gaining it. But... Um, None of that bothers me from the perspective of staffing this com- this company. There are, I think, 600,000 people in Maine who work. Yeah. And we only need 550. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're creating a great experience or trying to create a great experience... We get five five fifty out of out of six hundred thousand plus. When you have a great experience, you don't have very much turnover. Yeah, you know. So our turnover runs like fifteen percent, roughly. Wow. But that includes like retirement and people moving mm-hmm. and um, and so forth. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a I think that's a great point. Um, do you think? And I don't want to get too into because it depends on states and stuff but i think also a struggle people face is like you know dealing with employee pay and compensation do you have any thoughts on on that or or do i'm really glad that came up the other um that is super important so my i am constantly focused on how in a sustainable way people here can make more wow not, yeah not less that that traditional stereotypical model it might be how little mm-hmm. could i pay and still make it work mm-hmm. and to me the new model is how much can i pay and still make it work you can't pay so much that you totally um, disrupt your cost structure compared to everybody else. But you want to be on the front end of that curve. And I definitely think that one way to look at the um, areas where there are work shortages, it's simply that that, um, people aren't paying enough money yeah. to entice people yeah. to come do those jobs. Yeah. They, and that you've got to be willing, you've got to be 
willing to be competitive in a in a um, aggressively competitive about pay. So I'm constantly looking at our compensation metrics and challenging people to move them up, not yeah. down. That's constantly what our managers are hearing from me. Yeah. And as we become better, more efficient, more accurate, more profitable, making sure that um, that a healthy percentage of that improvement gets back to the people who are doing yeah. the work. And I think that's, you know, that's refreshing to hear just because I don't think – you know, sometimes it is a focus on how little can I pay. And it's like maybe it's shifting the mindset and, you know, obviously not just throwing all of your money, but if you can find a way to do it, why wouldn't you want to help the people that are helping you, you know? Right, exactly. And just having a living wage, because like you were saying, not necessarily in maybe some hardware stores, but I think in general, sometimes it's like people can't afford to stay on not making you know even if it is minimum wage they might not be able to afford to live in this large city and and do those things right and i think that uh livable wage number is really good goal as a um average compensation target so it's about don't want to look at minimum wage or the poverty line because those pay levels are just too low. That livable wage in Maine, you can Google it and find it for any county in America. Yeah. And in Maine, it's about $44,000 a year, which yeah. per hour is about 20 on a 42-hour work week is about $20 an hour. Yeah. And we are... Um, at that on an average basis but i really want to um keep keep Movie pushing needle. that yeah. yeah yeah we didn't talk at all about pine ridge did you want to talk about pine ridge yeah okay yeah yeah i'd love to hear yeah. a little bit about that so, part of your story as well right so at 2010 as we discussed i acquired my voice condition and then at 20 12 once the economy had stabilized i had this growing feeling that i needed to focus a little bit more on myself to kind of maybe regain my balance or uh search for my voice if you will Mm -hmm. and i didn't know how i was going to do that but that summer i picked up a copy of national geographic and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota was the cover story. And I read that article and just really felt uh, moved by it and said to my wife when I finished, I'm going to go there. There's no more thought that we're going to do it than that. I want to see what life is like for the people who live there. Now, that reservation... Uh, is quite famous. It's the largest of all the Sioux reservations on the Northern Plains, and it's historically been the most kind of combative, disenfranchised, poorest of all the reservations on the Northern Plains. If you Google median income by county, Two in America, the two yeah. counties that make up the Pine Ridge Reservation are the two poorest counties in America. Oh my gosh! 
And so, anyway, long story short, I uh, reached out, made a contact there, went there, got hooked on the people there and their story, uh, and have since been there 20 times wow. in eight years, and ended up writing a book about my experiences with them. Uh, but here's what really struck me. I was kind of going there on a little bit of a, of a modern day vision quest, kind of searching for my own voice. Yeah. Uh, but I was doing so in an entire community that felt like it had no voice. Wow. That felt forgotten, set aside, left behind, mm-hmm. marginalized, and not heard. Wow. And it really was the combination of those two events, my voice disorder and then my time at Pine Ridge that that changed forever for me the way I see the see the world and, and really in simple ways. So what I what I saw uh, was two things. One, there are lots of ways to lose your voice in this world. Mm-hmm. And lots of people and communities that don't feel fully heard. And that, in fact, you might even say, taking on that unanswerable question, what's the purpose of life? Mm. You might even say that the purpose of a human life is that quest we're all on to find our own voice. Yeah. Me, the essence of who I am. To know it and to own it and to come into it and to share it with the world. But that throughout history, unfortunately, leaders have probably done more to limit, restrict, and hinder the voices of others than to liberate them and to... um, encourage them and that's when I really really decided I wanted to try to lead differently and to have uh, a lumber company be a place where everybody could feel heard and could have a voice wow that's really that's really moving and what, so what is your book called in case anyone wants to wants to find it and read it? Can yeah, they buy it online or anything? Can. So my book is called uh, Not For Sale. Uh, the subtitle is Finding Center in the Land of Crazy Horse. And you can go right on Amazon um, and find it. But then in February, I've got a second book coming out um titled The Seventh Power, and the subtitle of that book is One CEO's Journey to the Business of Shared Leadership, and that book is really all about, um, the first book is really about, like, my personal awakening into some of this perspective, and then the second book is could you actually take um, that perspective and actually implant it in a company wow. in a way that that would uh, have the employees, the customers, and the company all thrive. Because not to get too <laughs> big with this, but 
but it's important to think about. I mean, how really are we going to change the world? Like, how is that going to happen? Yeah. And I think more and more people are realizing that the traditional institutions, federal governments, global um, churches, are increasingly uh, not going to be able to create the kind of change we want to see on this planet. So where's that change going to come from? Yeah. It's got to come uh, locally and businesses mm -hmm. because there are so many of them on this planet yeah. and because so many people work. I've con I really have concluded that business is actually one of, if not the best potential platform to change the, the world. Because I think you really have to change it one person at a time, and you really have to change it by not having people feel not heard. And that the source of almost every ill on this planet with humans is is um, feeling left behind, left out, yes. not included, not having a voice, not respected as you are. Yeah. And how are you going to change that after school? You know, schools can work yeah. on that, but then you're 18 or 22, and now and you're thrown out into the right into and the so world. It's got, it's got to be. It's almost like if work doesn't do that. Yeah. That we're in big trouble because there's nowhere else on a large scale that it can get done. But that's what starts to make then the idea of business so fun. Like, yeah, yeah lumber, great, trees, great, hardware, <laughs> great. But yeah. that's just uh, like a platform yeah. to, to go to make a difference. the human experience. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that's a good a good thing to end on. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share? Or do you have any, any last thoughts? I feel like we covered just about everything. That was great. I'm good. You are good. You've done it a few times, haven't you? You are too. I try. It's, it's definitely, I think, uh, I, well, I just love, I think my passion when you were talking about that, I think it's, if you, really boil down to it. I think everyone has, has to kind of learn what their purpose is. And for me, I feel like my purpose is connecting with other people and helping tell their story. So like yep. you saying you want to help your employees have a voice. I feel like I try and do that, whether it's through writing or interviews. So it's like, if, if you can find something that you're passionate about, no matter where you work, you can be fulfilled and happy. And I think that right. it kind of just, no, totally. That's what you're doing. Like that's what's happening today. You're giving me, but more importantly, a set of ideas, uh, a voice, a platform. Yeah. Um, exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're we so appreciate your welcome. time. It's great to have you both here yeah. in Maine, and I appreciate your um, this opportunity. Yeah, of course. So uh, last thing. Are there anything, so we're doing a separate podcast episode that's just like little tidbits from retailers we're visiting along the way during this road trip. Do you have any like thoughts on why Maine is so great or, or anything on like 
what you find from experiencing visiting other businesses, other lumber yards or hardware stores in the country. I don't know if you ever do that when you yeah. travel. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah. I think that um, one of the, the great things that uh, associations do in our industry is create a forum for people in the industry to meet and interact and exchange ideas. And we belong to a bunch of similar associations. And I've always been fond of saying that belonging, the simple act of belonging and mm -hmm. showing up and participating is the biggest benefit. So the association will have programs and services, and they're valuable. But the most valuable piece is the connectivity that you're offered yeah. to other people in your industry. Because exactly. our industry is filled, as you see all the yeah. time, with amazing people doing amazing things. Yeah. And you or association is a platform mm -hmm. for those people to be connected either mm -hmm. through podcasts or magazines or annual or uh, national or regional events. events. It's an yeah. opportunity for connectivity, but you have to show up. Yeah. Right. You got to go. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to be there. And you've got to be willing to um, engage. And open, I think also open yourself up to new ideas and, and seeing what other people are doing and, you know, maybe something they're doing you can take and and use in your own way or or they might learn from you. I think that's that's a big part of the human element in experience too is learning from each other and yeah, continuing the, to grow because we're all, at the end of the day, I always say this to all the retailers I talk to, whether you're Ace, True Value, you know, Emory Waterhouse, whatever your flag is that you fly, or even if you don't have like a public flag you fly, you're all independents. And that's like a powerful thing. And so if you can bring people together and say, set some of that stuff on the side because you're getting you're getting your your affiliation, you're putting that ahead of advancing as an industry. So I think if you can focus on the industry first and and not look at your fellow independent as just another competitor, mm -hmm. but look at them as someone you can learn from. I mean, that's that's when you're really going to find that you're growing and really changing and moving the needle in, in a positive direction. Did you know that if you're an independent home improvement retailer, you are already a member of the North American Retail Hardware Association? The NRHA has been in existence since 1900 and serves its members in a variety of ways. From Hardware Retailing Magazine and our two podcast series to exclusive research and events, the association is here to help you become a better, more profitable business owner. To learn about what NRHA is doing for you, visit nrha.org.